is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now we bring you the story of the Golden Gate Bridge. Here's Jesse. While construction of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco began January 5th, 1933, getting the idea off the ground took much longer than the actual construction. Under budget and ahead of schedule, with a total length of 1.7 miles across the strait connecting San Francisco Bay to the Pacific, more than 100,000 people cross this bridge every single day. Harvey Schwartz is a labor historian and author of Building the Golden Gate Bridge, a worker's oral history. Well, the idea to span the Golden Gate was first poised by a fellow named Joshua Norton, and he posed his idea in 1869. Nobody took him seriously. Nobody took Joshua Norton seriously because he also happened to be the self-appointed emperor of the United States. He wore a military uniform of his own making. But in San Francisco, he became a local celebrity and a novelty with his proclamations to dissolve the United States Congress by force. But 50 years later, the San Francisco city engineer, Michael O'Shaughnessy, began to discuss the idea around 1916, this is, with an experienced bridge builder named Joseph Strauss. Well, Joseph Strauss thought this was a terrific idea, and in the, throughout the 1920s, he propagandized the idea, or spread the idea, throughout Northern California. Born in Cincinnati, Ohio, 1870, the son of German and Jewish immigrants, Joseph Strauss graduated in 1892 with a degree in civil engineering. He would go on to design the Burnside Bridge in Portland, Oregon in 1926, the Lewis and Clark Bridge over the Columbia River in 1930, and some 400 other bridges scattered across the country. The gap between the city of San Francisco and what is now Marin County was only passable by ferry boat for decades, but it became such a hassle for a town with a booming population that the local economy was beginning to suffer because of it. People wanted answers. But in the early 1930s, more than 15 million Americans, one quarter of the working population, was unemployed. Our ability to pay has fallen. Government of all kinds is faced by serious curtailment of income. The means of exchange are frozen in the currents of trade. The withered leaves of industrial enterprise lie on every side. Farmers find no markets for their produce. And the savings of many years in thousands of families are gone. More important, a host of unemployed citizens face the grim problem of existence and an equally great number toil with little return. Only a foolish optimist can deny the dark realities of the moment. Experts said it was impossible to build a bridge across the 6,700-foot strait and 372 feet of ocean with violent currents and ferocious wind. Both the state of California and the federal government denied requests to fund the project, partially because they were building another bridge all the way across town. It seems amazing today that both the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge were built at roughly the same time. Both projects began in 1933. The Golden Gate Bridge was completed in... uh, May of 1937, the Oakland Bridge in November of 1936. The Bay Bridge was funded by federal money, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation money initially under Hoover, of all folks, and then completed under New Deal money uh, when FDR was president, who became president in 1932 as we, well, 33 took office. It had a lot of New Deal money into it. 
The Golden Gate Bridge is funded by private bonds. Also, the speed of the um, completion of the thing is interesting in just four years, as well as a relatively speaking reasonable cost. To give you an example, the Golden Gate Bridge cost $35 million. That would be, that's in the 1930s, that would be about $600 million today. And by contrast, the, the new partial part of the Oakland Bridge cost $6.4 billion. It took 12 years to build and has been plagued with difficulties. You know, you're looking at a different era. To some extent, it's related to safety issues. The Golden Gate Bridge, for example, didn't have the kind of earthquake proofing that you had with the new Oakland project, which slowed things down. You have to have work in there that's permit temporary. It's called false work, and that had to be taken out, and that raised the price a lot, and that was to protect the, uh, the building of the, of the Oakland Bridge from earthquakes. In the 1930s, engineers didn't have to worry about things like that. The estimate from city engineers was a cost of $100 million to bridge the Golden Gate. They put out the call to the lowest bidder, and Joseph Strauss answered the call. But even though most people wanted the bridge, there were a handful of others that didn't. This beautiful bridge that we know so well didn't come to pass easily. First of all, it was clear in the 1920s there was a need for something like this because there was so much traffic, and the ferry boats were backed up as they tried to take people across the water. However, the ferryboat interests opposed the coming of the bridge because they wanted to continue to make profits by ferrying people um, across from Marin County to San Francisco and so forth. So, you know, they put up a big fight, lobbyists in the state legislature and so forth. There were objections from the Army and also from the Navy. Um, so at that time was the Army Air Corps, and they said, you know, if the bridge is bombed or whatever by an enemy, then they'll block the way to the bay, and that's going to be terrible for us. Environmentalists also opposed the idea. In many cases, they felt, well, um, the opening to the bay is awfully beautiful the way it is. It's very natural, and uh, it should stay that way. So there were objections to be overcome. But I think in many ways, the biggest obstacle to us getting the beautiful bridge we got came from Joseph Strauss himself. He made a design which was a combination hybrid cantilever bridge and suspension bridge. A cantilever bridge depends on strength and power and it reaches out supported by a, a series of uh, pieces of metal, of metal spans and things that uh, look like a tinker toy. And so think about the old Oakland Bay Bridge when you think about a cantilever bridge. The suspension bridge is suspended from suspender cables which are held up by very large and strong main cables that go over saddles, they're called, at the top of the towers. Strauss is so very famous, and he does still get a lot of the credit, but it was other people who came up with the ideas that, uh, that made the bridge so beautiful. And you're listening to labor historian Harvey Schwartz, author of Building the Golden Gate Bridge, a worker's oral history. And by the way, so many of our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale... Hillsdale will get to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu, hillsdale.edu. Imagine this, a bridge like this gets built in four years. Crazy. More of this remarkable story, the building of the Golden Gate Bridge, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here with our American stories and the story of the building of the Golden Gate Bridge. Let's return to Jesse. Joseph Strauss, being the chief engineer, had surprisingly little experience with this type of cable suspension bridge, so a lot of the engineering and architecture was left to other experts like Irving Murrow, a relatively unknown architect who designed the shape of the towers, the lighting and art deco elements like the tower decorations, the railing and walkways. The famous international orange color was also his idea. He picked that because the primer originally was pretty close to that. Well, he also designed the overhead arch at Fort Point, which saved for Fort Point, that's down the San Francisco side of the bridge. It was finally decided that that was the right color, and it went out over the Navy's suggestion, which was going to be black and orange stripes, horizontal stripes. It's the so-called bumblebee effect. The um, Army Air Corps suggested white and orange stripes. So the fact that that didn't happen because of Romero's suggestion saved the bridge so that it became what we know of today. Construction began on January 5, 1933, carried out by the McClintic Marshall Construction Company, a subsidiary of Bethlehem Steel Corporation. Joseph Strauss remained head of the project overseeing the day-to-day construction and quickly became known for his interest in the safety of his men. In the 1930s, workers' lives were not held as valuable as they are today. In fact, in many ways you can say they were held cheaply. At the time, in the 1930s, it was assumed as a rule of thumb that one worker would have to die for every million dollars of investment that was required to build a bridge, so 35 people should have died building the Golden Gate Bridge. Strauss himself insisted that harnesses be used. He insisted that hard hats be used. These are innovations, if you can imagine, at the time. And here you have people, in some cases, 700 feet up in the air working over the ocean without this kind of safety. He insisted on that. He also brought the idea forth to have a net. It didn't cost a lot. It was made of rope, of thick rope, but this is the safety net that Strauss brought in and said, uh, this is going to be important. He also coincidentally thought the workers would work faster over it. They had a safety net under them. The net is credited with saving 19 people who fell into it and lived, were called members of the uh, Halfway to Hell Club. In part, I think that that name was selected because if you fell, for example, from mid-span to 220 feet, you were going to hit the water at 75 miles an hour and you'd probably die. Well, the 11 people who died building the bridge at least was not 35, and it was looked upon as being a pretty, a pretty good record. 11 is better than the 24, for example, who died building the Oakland Bridge. At least 24, I've seen different figures, 26 and 28. Harvey Schwartz had the unique opportunity to hear firsthand stories from some of the original workers who built the bridge. He wrote them down and published their words in his book, Building the Golden Gate Bridge, A Worker's Oral History. By and large, they were white males. Many were sons of immigrants, which I think is very interesting. There were some older guys who were actually immigrants themselves. But I think, as far as I can tell, a great number of these people were immigrants who had come during the migration from Europe, uh, during the Great Migration of 1880 to the beginning of World War I in 1914 in Europe. I'm going to start out with first days on the Golden Gate Bridge job. These are stories of people experiencing the, the bridge uh, you know, on their first day. Fred DeVita was the son of immigrants. He grew up poor in uh, Marin County. He managed anyway to graduate from UC Berkeley in engineering in 1934. The only job during the Great Depression that he could get was as a paint scraper on the Golden Gate Bridge. He did that on the North Tower. And by the way, two years later, because of his, his background and training, he did get to uh, be the person who installed Strauss's safety net. Here's what he remembers from the first day, this is 1934, going up an outside elevator 
on the Rinside Tower. The wind was blowing, the fog was coming in, and everything was dripping wet. You could hear the riveting hammers going. Just noise. And here I am, a country hick, just coming in. I'd never been on a job like that in my life. Here I am, going up this elevator, up, 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 getting more scared as we get there. The towers are 746 feet high. We were down near 710 feet. Then the elevator stopped. The elevator operator says, this is where you get off. Two new painters were with me. We looked out there. To get off, you had to step on a 2 by 12 that was cantilevered out. In other words, across a piece of wood. The two painters looked, and they saw the 2 by 12 They said, do we have to get out and cross that? The elevator operator said, that's the only way. The painter said, no, take me down. I'm quitting. Then the elevator operator said to me, how about you? Do you want to get off? I thought a little bit. Then I says, it's the only job I have. It's only three or four feet that you have to walk out there. I can make that. So I braved it and went across. So that's your first day on the job. Here's a guy named Glenn McIntyre. He's an iron worker. He worked as a Gandhi dancer. That's a railroad worker. Before he got a job on the Golden Gate, he was a fry cook and a bunch of other things. He worked on both the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate. Here he reflects on his first day on the Golden Gate Bridge. He was putting up steel in a raising gang. The raising gang would put big pieces of steel up, then they'd be bolted in, and later they'd be riveted. This is what he said, and this is, and includes his reaction to the safety net. He said, when they sent me out to the Golden Gate Bridge, the first place they put me, I didn't have a net under me. That was before they stretched the safety net. In the raising gang on the Golden Gate, you didn't have nothing under you but the water. It was quite strict on your safety there, though. You used to count the guys who would go down on the Bay Bridge. It did give you a good feeling on the Golden Gate to have that under you there when it went in. Glenn McIntyre also talked about the bridge's color, and he echoed what a lot of other workers thought about it. They didn't think it was all that important. Their concerns were not with um, the color of the bridge as such. They were the concerns of working-class people trying to survive the Great Depression. His uh, argument was that uh, politicians, bridge designers, reporters, other people were, were preoccupied with color, but that wasn't the way the workers looked at it. This is what Glenn said. There was controversy about the color of the Golden Gate Bridge, but that was for other people. I don't think it mattered to the iron workers themselves. It may have been important with the politicians who have something to say, one against the other. But the iron workers didn't care what color it was. Payday and five o'clock was what they were looking for. The color didn't make no difference as long as the green got in your pocket. We was well paid. We got $11 a day for eight hours. That was a good wage in those days. The bricklayers was the only ones in the crafts that made more than the iron workers at that time. On the Golden Gate, we didn't get much of any overtime. It was an eight-hour day and he was glad of it. If you went up from five to seven, that was a good day's pay. It took just over four years to build the Golden Gate Bridge, and this is the actual sound of the final rivet being placed. When completed, the celebration that took place in San Francisco lasted an entire week. Some went across the bridge on stilts and roller skates and unicycles. Vendors set up along the roadway and sold an estimated 50,000 hot dogs. At noon on May 28th, FDR pressed a telegraph key in the White House that announced the bridge's opening to the entire world. At 3 p.m., a fleet of 42 Navy ships sailed under the bridge, and the ceremony was capped off with fireworks at 10. Joseph Strauss, 
the head engineer, read a poem that he penned for the occasion. At last the mighty task is done, resplendent in the western sun. The bridge looms mountain high, its titan piers grip the ocean floor. Its great steel arms link with shore to shore. Its towers pierce the sky. The initial toll for the bridge was 50 cents each way, roughly the equivalent to $18 round trip today, a hefty price to pay in the midst of a Great Depression. But today, the Golden Gate Bridge tolls are collected in one direction only, heading southbound into the city. Maintenance never stops, as five to 10,000 gallons of paint are used to touch up the bridge every year and it would take roughly 47,000 gallons to cover it entirely. The official paint is called Golden Gate Bridge International Orange, and it's manufactured by Sherwin-Williams. But there's a catch. They only sell it in 500-gallon quantities. But you're not entirely out of luck. According to the paint company, the consumer-grade version of Golden Gate Bridge Orange is called Fireweed. For Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. And a special thanks to Jesse, and also a special thanks to labor historian Harvey Schwartz, author of Building the Golden Gate Bridge, A Worker's Oral History. And it was great to hear from some of those workers. Fred DeVita, for instance, talking about walking across that thin plank at very high altitudes and those really tough breezes and cool, cool, tough weather for anybody who's ever visited that part of the country. It's not a duck walk, and it's not a picnic. And walk across that Golden Gate Bridge and look up. And just think about what those men endured and had to do. It's the only job I had, Fred said. So I braved it and went across that plank. 1.7 miles long, connecting San Francisco and Marin County, one of the great engineering and architectural achievements in American history. And it was done in four short years for $35 million, which is $600 million today's dollars and it's unimaginable coming up with something like that today and by the way the people that opposed it the ferry interests opposed it they just wanted people to keep on going across on those little ferry boats the army and the navy didn't much care for it and of course the environmentalists thought this is going to degrade the beauty of this scene and oh how silly they sound today one of the most beautiful bridges in the world actually if anything flanking this beautiful environment surrounding it. The story of the Golden Gate Bridge here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about just about everything here on this show, as you know. And today... We have a story from Damon Cox. He was born in Arkansas and then moved to Pontotoc, Mississippi. He's sharing with us his life as a semi-professional video gamer. Here's Damon. I started off uh, playing video games as a kid. Uh, We were like a super, super poor family. We lived in a trailer out in front of my Mimi's and Papa's house, so there wasn't really much to do, so video games was kind of a way to escape. My parents used to have an Atari and a Nintendo, So it was just a thing that I used to play with a lot. And it was just something I really, really enjoyed. And uh, once I started getting into like more of the shooter based video games, friends would come over and I would play them and I would beat them. And uh, I was just the best one out of our little friend group. 
And then uh, later on, we would eventually move and get internet, and I was able to play online, and I was able to beat uh, multiple people like all around the world. And then eventually, I decided to start running some like game battle tournaments, which are online tournaments. And I was able to win some of those, and it got some recognition and some traction from some of the top players. So I was able to play with them. And then one day, I finally just got up the courage to go into uh, Halo 4 AGL Nashville, and I was able to compete in Nashville. At Nashville, I was, I think, 13, 14. I walked in, and it was a little game studio, like game arcade type thing. And um, there was hundreds of people there. And I was just really excited uh, to be there. And then also getting to meet all these people that I've been playing with online and kind of like my heroes at the time it was really cool seeing like all of them and being able to like see that they're like one of us uh in a way so i was able to play with them and then um i got to go on main stage and compete and seeing like your uh gamer picture and everything like that brought up and having like fans like kind of say your name and stuff was uh, a really big moment for me especially at like 13 it is just yeah no one's ever doing that and I was pretty much the youngest one there there may have been a couple who were around my age but everyone else was about 16 to 20 years old and so I just was kind of like the short little skinny guy who was just there to play video games and but honestly I felt so at home because everybody there was just so nice so outgoing just just happy to be around one another who share the same interests ended up winning and I came back and surprised my parents with the $15,000 check. Uh, at first they were kind of iffy. My mom was definitely like, kind of like, okay, maybe you can't do something. But my dad was like, I don't know about this. And it was so new. A lot of people really didn't know anything about it. So my dad definitely was not on board yet, but my mom started like, okay, maybe you can play and everything like that. But at the same time, like what 13 year old is going to get a full yes from both parents saying, yeah, let's just spend more time playing video games. Not many people are going to like being able to convince their parents. Now, right now it's becoming more of a common thing because like uh, Fortnite is allowing uh, this opening for like $3 million tournaments. So a lot of parents are actually like buying coaches and stuff like that for their kids um, to try to like get better at video games. Just like uh, baseball, you'll hiring a pitching coach or anything like that. That's what they're doing for video games now. So it's kind of like becoming the norm, but definitely 10 years ago, it was not even uh, like an idea to have someone literally come home and go, you know what, I want to not go to school anymore. I want to do video games full time. There's no way that would slide <laughs> 10, 20 years ago. <laughs> Whenever I was like first like diving into video games a lot more, I would try to play eight to 10 hours a day. I would literally come home, throw my backpack on the ground. I would try to do my homework on the like on the school bus on the way back just so I had more time to play video games. So I would get home and start playing video games. Well, when my parents got off work, they were like, why didn't you like uh, go hit with your brother or why didn't you shoot basketball or go outside and just kind of play around in the woods? And I was like, well, I wanted to play video games. Well, my parents would say like, we'll go outside and play or play outside with your brother and everything. And then after you play for a little bit, you can come back in and uh, play video games. So I would go outside pretty much just try to stall time until I can come back in and play video games. And then uh, whenever I finally got to start competing in tournaments and starting to win, I found out I was kind of good at it. Started making a decent amount of money. I ended up making about 125, 120 grand total. Was able to 
help pay for my first vehicle and help pay for my first like three years of college. Now, that doesn't mean that I always made good decisions with the money. I also splurged on different like gaming accessories. Like I always wanted the, the newest and the best stuff. So I got a new headset, a new monitor, uh, two custom controllers. Uh, so I, I definitely didn't make the smartest decision with the money, but I was able to make a couple good decisions where it doesn't look as bad now when I talk about it. <laughs> So I, I competed uh, all the way up to 15 and like 15, 16 years old. And then I kind of just started diving into sports a lot more. So I started playing baseball. I played varsity baseball. So we made it to state and we ended up losing state. And that kind of was like, okay, maybe baseball isn't going to be the best for me. So I ended up transitioning into bodybuilding. So um, whenever I was younger, my dad ended up just running away from us. My last memory, we were at a stoplight and he opened the door and took off running, like, like just took off running. Whenever we got home, there was actually police officers who ended up uh, taking my mom off of a um, miscommunication because uh, my real dad like pinned these charges on my mom. And so she ended up going away and uh, we're just was stuck in the trailer until our mama came and got us. My mama had this uh, guy like come over and take care of us. Uh, and he ended up becoming my real dad after my mom got out of jail. They hit it off real good and uh, they got married. And then after that, they adopted me. It's not really something I remember a whole lot of. I remember the adoption part, but uh, the age is kind of like a little iffy for me. I don't remember everything, but my brother definitely doesn't know anything at all. And it was just something that I had to like step up and like be the big brother for and like try to show him something else to take his mind off of. Like, so we just threw ourselves into competition. So competitions was always the thing that kind of helped me escape like that thrive to be better was always something that I wanted to do. And it kind of just rubbed off on my little brother. So we competed in many different things like my brother did cage fighting. We grew up doing different MMA stuff. I played baseball, he played football. I, I don't feel sorry for myself at all. We found a, a dad who was literally 10 times better than what the real one was supposed to like ever be. Like the dad I have now has made me into something that I am like so proud to be. Literally the actions of my, my real dad um, made me just thrive to want to be better, to try to help out my mom because like, he just ran away and like, like we weren't good enough so i was like well i'm gonna be good enough for this this family so i want to just make my mom proud and make my dad proud that's all i want to do whenever i was trying to become a professional gamer we needed a place at a like a certain ranking we ended up placing outside that ranking and it kind of brought me down because i put everything i had into that time and i just wasn't good enough to win so I kind of just got real down and was like, you know what, maybe it's time for me to kind of like pin this up and try something else. That's whenever I went to bodybuilding. Like that's when bodybuilding was kind of like my escape now. So I ended up selling all my stuff actually. I sold my custom controllers. I sold everything but my monitor. Monitor was the only thing I kept. But bodybuilding kind of helped me escape because of how like the schedule was. Wake up early, two workouts a day, uh, meal prepping, uh, eating every like two and a half hours. And you're listening to Damon Cox and what a unique voice and what a unique story. 
The video gamer aspect, no doubt, is unique. But my goodness, what happened to him as a young man watching his father just ditch him and ditch the family? And another man coming in and loving on this young man and ultimately marrying his mom. The dad I have now has made me into something I'm so proud to be, is what Damon said. And so for all of you out there thinking about entering into a young man's life or a young lady's life, a young girl's life, this is what the difference can be. And this is what the product can turn out to be if, if you give that love to a stranger. When we come back, more of Damon Cox's story here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and we've been listening to the story of Damon Cox and his life as a semi-professional gamer. After a few years of video games, he decided to give them a break and try something new, bodybuilding. I started off on everything whenever my friend wanted me to come spot him one day at the gym. So I I went up uh, to spot him and after we got done doing a chest press, he goes, "Uh, let's see how much you can do. So I was like, okay, let's see what I can actually do. And we put a 25. I was like, I'll definitely be able to do that. And I failed miserably at it. And I was like, okay, I need to start working on this. So it started eating me just alive inside of like how weak I was. I was 135 pounds my beginning of my senior year. And this is when I started working out. My friend's dad just bought a gym. So there was no excuses not to work out. So I started working out with all of them. And then by the senior year, I was 197 pounds and I had stretch marks out of the wazoo. So I put on a lot of size, but it was through intense training, like intense training, at least six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. So I ended up getting a coach and he was able to show me how much water to take in, how much food to take in. But uh, we needed to do a bulking series because I was a little bit like smaller at the time. So we did a 16-week bulk, and I was on 5,200 calories at first. And it seemed like a lot, but I wasn't gaining as much weight as he wanted to. So he actually bumped me up to 7,000 calories total at the end of it. I was eating so much, so much. I would wake up hungry throughout the night, and I had peanut butter next to my bed. And I would literally wake up, do like two bites of peanut butter, and just roll over and go to bed. And then uh, after this, we decided to do a cutting phase so I can get ready for a show. So during my cutting phase, though, uh, we had a little scare. Um, I left a shaker bottle out in the car uh, overnight, and the very next morning I went up to uh, make a protein shake. I couldn't find my shaker bottle, so I went out to the car and got it. Didn't think nothing of it. I just rinsed it out and then made my protein shake. Well, about two days later, I started uh, throwing up really bad, and it was honestly the worst pain of my life. My organs, I felt them contracting and actually like coming up. Um, and then I ended up passing out and my roommate found me in a trash can and brought me to the hospital. Well, uh, the shaker bottle had black mold in it and I was drinking out of it and I ended up infecting like six of my organs, five or six of my organs. And, uh, they said like 30 minutes to an hour, I would have died. So after that, they told me it would take two months to heal. I gave it two weeks, got back into the gym. Well, going into the show, 
I wasn't as defined as I was due to um, the sickness, but I still looked okay. And so I placed second in that show, and it was something where I was like, okay, I was able to blame it on something else instead of just me. I was like, okay, I was sick, so let's let's see how good I can actually do this. So the next year, I took off of college. So to become a professional bodybuilder at the time, uh, you needed to place at least top three in a state show and then go to nationals and place in a national show. So my whole goal was to literally just go to nationals. So we competed in the Southern Classic to compete. I ended up placing second there. It was not even close, honestly. Kind of like let me know that I wasn't going to be able to make it far without steroids. And I decided I wasn't going to do steroids. So it was time to just give up on that. But when Fortnite came out, I literally played one game and I was like, okay, I've got I've to do this. And this was on like the decline of bodybuilding for me. After I played that first couple of games of Fortnite, I was like, okay. And literally the next morning went out, bought a uh, headset, controller, Xbox. I started back playing like 10 hours a day. And when Apex came out, I just dove straight in and I was running game battles off the start on that game and uh, just still doing that, just making steady income off that game. So uh, right now, a lot of colleges are trying to make teams uh, for like different esports teams because they see how big that it's taking off now. Because like recently, League of Legends actually had more viewers than the Super Bowl. So uh, people are starting to like figure out, okay, maybe video games are kind of here to stay. So it's getting a lot of attention now. So a lot of colleges are actually handing out scholarships for their like sports team, so their esports team. And I say within five years, we'll have like SEC teams, we'll have like the Pac-10, everything like that, or the Pac-12, whatever. Um, we would have like actual like big, big teams playing now uh, against each other. So it'll be really exciting to see like how much video games progress in about five to 10 years. So like Battle Royale is kind of what's hitting the scene right now. It's uh, pretty much like 60 to 100 players drop in on a map and you just scavenge your loot and the last player lives um, is like gonna be the winner. So that's the thing that's like making Fortnite so big. Uh, there was games who did it before, but no one did it to like the standard that Fortnite did it. They did it with color, they, they did it with pop. If you like see Fortnite, it's so colorful. They do like these creative skins. And so it was very easy to draw like a younger age to play a game. And they also try to keep it uh, friendly. They don't actually like call it kills, they call it like frags because a lot of parents try to pin psychotic behavior on video games it's like okay well if they're killing like little bots and little characters then it may have them a tendency to try to like grow up wanting to like shoot and stuff like that but fortnite tries to take all that away and just takes it about the video game so a lot of people look at gamers as just anti-social people who don't want to go outside uh usually unathletic um they just like pin them as like they're in their mom's basement playing video games Whenever I was going to these uh, tournaments, I figured out a lot of them played sports. Uh, a lot of them were just very, very outspoken. They love just talking to you and meeting new people and everything. So it was crazy to see how different the stereotypes are. Now, of course, there's going to be like antisocial people, like even in sports today, like there's going to be players who don't want to go in front of the camera. 
just like video game players like there's a lot of people who maybe like they come from a background like me who didn't take it as well as i did and they had a rough like growing up so they go okay maybe like i, I want to stay inside i don't really want to talk to people all that much uh but video game players from what i like got to know them as they were very outspoken they loved meeting new people loved being around a community who loved video games the best I've ever felt was uh, during video games compared to playing in the state championship of baseball, uh, being on stage in bodybuilding and being on stage for uh, video games. Video games is by far uh, the best feeling I had. There's something about being on stage with uh, 10 other gamers and having 500 to 1,000 people watching you. You turn around and you see this big screen and it's your screen was brought up there because maybe you made the play of the, of the game and everybody like chanting your like gamer tag so my gamer tag was hyper so uh everybody like chanting hyper it was just one of the best feelings it felt like i was i did something i accomplished something there is definitely people that i look up to that i know that i will probably never be as good at but that's not really a mindset that i like to have i like to literally see someone who's better than me and be like okay well let me try to match that skill level so whenever i watch someone play i literally look at them and i'm like okay, what are they doing different? What is their decision makings that are making them like this elite player? It pretty much like eats me alive that why am I not that good? So I start practicing more. If they're doing a mechanic that I'm not doing or they're playing on a setting that I'm not playing on, then I swap to that and I'm trying to match them, but not only match them, be better than that. Seeing like five, 10 people who are literally light years ahead of me is amazing because it's still a learning experience for me. I, I figured like, okay, I'm getting really good at this because like right now I'm like with on Xbox, I'm within the top 30 uh, in the United States. And then right after my I broke my hand, I realized how short this can actually be for me as a career. Having a backup plan in a main career is still the like the main thing I need to have a priority on. So I'm trying to figure that out. And gaming is literally just the secondary just to pay bills right now while I just finish up my degree. So uh, I probably play about five to six hours a day right now, but there is days where I do play more and there is days that I do play less, but I try to play at least five to six hours a day. That's the only way to pretty much stay consistent at the top level. And uh, I think that's a low number actually, because back in the day, whenever I was competing, I was playing for about eight to 10 hours a day, but uh, it seems like a lot. Everybody's like, you're sitting inside, but if you think about it, I mean, like, how much does your son play baseball? Like, they have probably double practices like I did. When they get home, they're probably throwing the tennis ball against the, the wall, trying to, like, work on ground balls, going outside, hitting wiffle balls and stuff like that. So it averages about the same. If you want to be the best at something, you got to put the hours in. So that was that, that's something that I definitely see changing, though, as I'm trying to, like work my way into strength and conditioning side because i would love to be a strength and conditioning coach so finishing up the college degree and getting a good job that's kind of my new mindset so i would love to take my dad to a ufc fight um in madison square garden that's like my dream bucket list to give him and my mom's always wanting to go to hawaii so my new goal is it's not be a pro gamer, not be the pro bodybuilder. It's literally just give each of them something that because they gave me everything. So now it's like, I want to do that for them. So that's my new like 
kind of sport, I guess, is that. And you've been listening to Damon Cox, and what a delight. From gamer to bodybuilder and back to gaming, Fortnite just grabbed him. Plus, the life filled with steroids didn't really appeal to him. Smart kid. Really smart kid. And now a young man. And gaming, well, it's becoming a national, well, it's become a national sport. Like it or not, and there are a lot of critics. The number of people doing this, the number of colleges turning these things into scholarships, um, it's just happening. And the amount of money being made in the industry, it's for real. And that he wants to now take his dad to NYC to see UFC at Madison Square Garden. And he wants to take his mom to on a Hawaiian vacation, tells you the kind of sun he is. Damon Cox, his story, a local story here in Mississippi, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we love telling your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we ripped this next story straight out of the headlines of the Wall Street Journal, and it was one of the most popular stories for almost a month running. And... We decided to track it down, and today we have on Julie Lawson, the daughter of Sonny and Bryna Hurwitz. They raised their daughters Julie and Freda in Boston. In 2016, after Sonny and Bryna had both died, Julie took a DNA test and later got her sister Freda to do the same, revealing some shocking truths. Julie, let's start off in the beginning. What made you want to take this DNA test, and what happened? Well, just simple curiosity. I had been working on my family tree through Ancestry.com for quite a while, several years, and my mom was still alive, so she could help me quite a bit with her side of the family. It was just always interested me. I never felt rooted. I never knew my and felt connected family-wise. And I was just curious, and I like to research, and, you know, on those websites, one thing leads to another. So I decided to do my DNA. Nothing came up that surprised me on my DNA, right? So there was there was no shocker, but there were a couple of names that didn't mean anything to me. And when my DNA matched one of those names, that person reached out to me through Ancestry. His name is Larry, and he's a psychologist and lives in Long Island, and it turns out he's my second cousin. We share the same great-grandfather, but we didn't know any of this. But he was curious, and he also had a deep love of family history and ancestry and had been working on his tree for years, and he noticed my name show up on his list, and he wanted to know if I knew anything, and I knew nothing. And he would say, well, your mom's still alive. Why don't you get her to do the DNA? I said, well, yeah, maybe I'll send her a kit. And he said, your sister, too, because that'll really help. And I'm like, well, my, my sister lives in England. She's a very busy woman. It won't be her priority, but I'll keep bugging her to do it. So Larry and I stayed in touch intermittently, and he'd check in. I couldn't, we couldn't figure it out. We let it go. He never really let it go. So then, two years later, my mom has died, and she wouldn't do the DNA kit, which I never knew why she didn't want to do it. 
And then my sister, out of the blue, who's been living in England for 30 years, gets a two-year contract in the United States and decides to move to Falls Church, Virginia, a place neither of us have ever been. She has no business even being in the United States, and she asks if I can come help her get settled and with child care. So I was on a plane, and while I was there, it dawned on me, she still hasn't done the DNA kit. I'm going to get her one. I'm going to make her spit. I'm going to get the kit. She's going to spit, and we'll go from there. So I did. So it was her test that came back with the shocker, because that is when the, the closest relationship that popped up to her was a man's name that we did not know. And it came up as a really close match. And we looked his name up on Facebook, and there we were staring at a man about 62 years old who looked just like our dad when dad was that age. But dad's been gone 11 years, and this stranger is looking at us. I'm like, oh, my God, that's dad. So we realized dad had an affair. We've got a brother, a half-brother. And I know that a lot of people don't see their Facebook private messages, and that's always frustrating. It could sit there forever. But within 20 minutes, he answered. And all I had said was, hmm, looks like we have a DNA match. Would love to talk to you about it. Because we didn't know what he knew. We didn't want to be the ones to shock him, a stranger saying, you look just like our dad. So we were very delicate about it. And... um I said, well, you know, I'm in Falls Church, Virginia. I live in Phoenix, but I'm visiting my sister and helping her get settled here. I have no idea where you are, but we'd love to talk. And he writes back and he says, you're in Falls Church, Virginia. I'm 45 minutes from you. And the next day is Mother's Day. And I say to him, well, this is amazing. You're 45 minutes from us, and I know Mother's Day is tomorrow, but we're not doing anything. And is there any chance you would come over? And he said, let me talk to my fiancé, and got back to me. And he said, yeah, we can be there at noon. Well, my sister had gone to bed. She didn't even know how far I had taken this. So when she wakes up in the morning, I said, we're going to be meeting our half-brother today. He's going to be here about noon with his fiancé. We started gathering pictures of Dad because we know that we're his sisters, but he doesn't know he's coming to meet his sisters. He doesn't know we know his dad, that we grew up with his dad. So Freda had not yet unpacked everything from England. We spent quite a time scurrying around, going through boxes to try and find photos of dad at different ages. And we did, and we had this stack, and we had it upside down on the dining room table, and the doorbell rang, and we, I opened the door, and it was, I was looking at my dead father, I mean, it was so weird. I mean, it was just, I, I don't know what else to say other than he didn't just resemble Dad. It was like Dad was standing right there. It, it was I almost, I think I almost fainted. And, of course, I got emotional, and I had already warned him that I was the emotional one and Freda was the practical one. So he came in. He sat down at the dining room table. We made small talk. And so I, at some point I said to him, Dana, why do you think, what do you think our connection is? What do you think about this whole DNA thing? And he said, well, obviously, we're cousins some kind of way. I'm like, he thinks we're cousins. And I finally said to him, I just leaned into him, and I said, Dana, 
We are 99.9% sure we are not cousins. We think you're our brother. And I turned over the stack of pictures of Dad, and now he's looking at these photos of this man who he looks just like. He just went silent, actually. He didn't know what to say. And, I mean, I told him I already loved him. I said, I don't know what kind of person you're going to turn out to be, but we love Dad and we love you and you look just like Dad and this is so amazing and, oh, wow, we were so excited. We knew who his dad was and his mom died kind of young. And each time he had asked her through his youth, she would change the subject and at one point he finally stopped asking. And when we come back, we're going to continue with Julie Lawson's story. My goodness, the scary side of DNA tests. But in the end, a truth revealed, a secret unveiled. Julie Lawson's story continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories into our conversation with Julie Lawson. She and her sister had taken DNA tests and found out that they had a half-brother. So you find out in the end that there was a secret about an infidelity of your father's. And so let's talk about how that secret affected you and your sister. Well, when we first, the first secret of finding our brother was very exciting to find him and and welcome him, and that he lived 45 minutes away was amazing, and my sister has a 12-year-old son, and so now her son has an uncle, and, you know, they haven't lived in the United States, and and so this was great. So we were just happy-go-lucky. We have this new brother and his fiance, and it was really exciting. Let's talk about the, this gentleman. How did this secret affect him? He had to be relieved, in a sense. He finally knew who his dad was. <laughs> At first, he did kind of, I mean, he was in shock, of course, because we knew longer than he did. We had several hours to be thinking about it all. Um, he's a very laid-back, kind of cool, quiet guy, like Dad, actually. And, um, I, you know, he was speechless, and yet he seemed delighted that he had siblings, that he's finding out this truth. He, hadn't, he had not been on a quest at all to find out anything. He had sort of, like, given up on it. So um, he said, and he grew up an only child, so he seemed really excited about all of it. I mean, it was weird, and it was, you know, I don't don't know the adjectives to describe the whole thing, because there's so, it's like an avalanche of emotions. So that night, you had this puzzlement you had to deal with. So what happened was, because I used to look at my matches pretty regularly to see if anybody new popped up, 
um, cl- in a close uh, related match, like a first, second cousin or something. I wasn't interested in sixth to eighth cousins, but I would check it. So I was kind of familiar with the same names showing up. You know, they do it in order of closeness. So I kind of knew the names. And when he came up on my sister's uh, DNA, I don't know, some time went by, and I thought, you know, that name isn't familiar. Here's this guy. He looks like Dad. I don't remember it showing up on my list. So I looked at my list, and he wasn't on it. And I thought, well, maybe because he's a half-sibling. Again, my ignorance, I don't know how DNA worked. I thought maybe we didn't share enough DNA for him to show up on my list, but he could show up on my sister's list. But that was my naivete and ignorance. And and, um, the cousin that had been in touch with me from my first DNA results, who was asking me all the time, how do you think we're connected? Will your mother do the test? Will your sister do the test? This was Larry. And so I called him like two days into this, and I said, well, something has come up. And I told him, now he's a psychologist, so I told him that this guy isn't on my list. He's on my sister's list, and he looks just like our dad. And Larry got it right away. He was really good over the years at looking at the puzzle pieces of his stuff. And he just, it dawned on him, well, if he's not on my list, then they have to have different fathers her sister and she are not full sisters because this guy is related to her sister and not her. So the two sisters can't be full sisters. He he, he was the, the puzzle fixer. He brought all the pieces to the table and he wasn't going to tell me at first because he knew it was going to change my life. And he said, have you looked at the centimorgans between Dana and your sister? And I said, no, I don't know. What's a centimorgan? It sounds like an insect with a hundred legs or something. And and he said, no, it's a way of quantifying DNA. A certain range of centimorgans means you're a half-sibling. A certain is a full-sibling or parent-child relationship. So um, I looked at the centimorgans between him and my sister, and they fell into the correct range of half-siblings. At some point, Larry said, did you look at the centimorgans between you and your sister? And I thought, my first reaction was, well, why would I do that? I don't even care about my son of organs between me and my sister. And then I realized in a split second he was telling me something. I'm like, what is he meaning? And I looked at the centimorgans, and we had the same amount of centimorgans as she had with her other half-sibling. So I was a half-sibling. And that was a shocking moment. We didn't cry because, oh, now we're only half siblings. And it wasn't like that. If she had had no DNA, she'd always be my full sister. It, we cried, I think, the shock of it all. In that split second, we were learning that we didn't have the same father. And that my dad wasn't my dad. I mean, he was my dad, but he wasn't my father. And that... You know, it still feels fresh, obviously. I didn't even know I still had this emotion in me. But that split second is when we were freaking out. Like, what does this all mean? There's more to this. And if he, if my new brother is now not my brother because we share a different dad, and my dad isn't my father, who's my father? Oh, my God. It went from this incredible joy and delight it was like having dad around. Yeah, and to suddenly not. 
you you now have got to be curious again. It's almost like what what really happened here? Who's my in your, at this late stage in your life? You're asking yourself, who's my daddy, and who did that turn out to be, Julie? Oh. How did this How did this come to be that you made this discovery? This was to Larry helping me with all these puzzle pieces. Man, my little cogs were so busy turning. I was angry. I was so hurt. I had a night of being in a fetal position, wailing like a baby to my mother. I mean, why? What What did you do? What is this about? And And now it was starting to make sense that all of this was explaining why she treated me the way she did. It was so intensely primal. A primal therapist would have had a ball with me. It was unbelievable. You talk about cathartic and so painful and so shocking. It's like your whole life. And people, I've heard people say, well, nothing really changed. Your dad's always going to be your dad. Your sister's always going to be your sister. And I want to strangle those people. I'm trying to be cool about it. They just don't get it. Of course, the content of my relationships don't change, but the context does. And that's shocking. It's just so much shock to the system of feeling so ungrounded and also getting an explanation at the same time for your torturous youth. You and your mom had a tough relationship, and oh. now, you, now you're understanding why. Your mom had a secret, too. That, And by the way, she had to bear that secret, and that was no duck walk either for her. I, I'm sure it wasn't. I know, so I went to that range of emotions, trying to put myself in the shoes of this young woman and what she was going through. I mean, so you want to have compassion for everybody in their story. I mean, we're all so damaged to some extent, and some of us get to process it and go on and do great, and some don't process it at all. And she was one that never processed any of it. She was a very immature woman throughout her life. And she had a lot of wonderful qualities and very loved by a lot of people. And she was a young girl, and she was in love with this boy that she was dating. And she wasn't in love with her. She was just a nice girl. And they were all friends in a small circle that double dated. And she wanted him to marry her. Her best friends were 17 and 18, and they were all engaged. She wanted to be engaged. She wanted to get out of her parents' house. She hated her stepmother. Um... And she fell in love with this boy, and he wasn't into her like that. And so they stopped dating. He told her, you know, if you want to get married, you really better find somebody else because I'm going to have a life of adventures. I've got things I want to do. And she went on and married my dad. And when we come back, we're going to continue this remarkable story with Julie Lawson. Again, this was ripped off the headlines of the Wall Street Journal and it was one of the most popular stories of the year. And when we continue, more with Julie Lawson. A DNA test turns her life and her sister's upside down. This is Our American Stories.
And we return to Our American Stories. Julie Lawson has been telling us her family's story. One day, she and her sister took a DNA test. Her sister showed as having a half-brother, but Julie, through the help of her cousin Larry, soon realized that she and her sister were half-sisters as well. So now she's left wondering, who's my daddy? Julie's mother fell in love in high school, but her boyfriend at the time was just not interested. So her mother married another man she didn't love. Julie, tell us what happened next. About a year and a half into the marriage, she'd already had her first child, my brother. She called her ex-boyfriend up. She heard he was, um, I don't know, she, she called him up because she wanted to go for a cup of coffee, supposedly. They got together, and um, they were commiserating. She was telling him that she wasn't happy in her marriage. It wasn't what she thought it would be or should be. And they had a one-night thing, and he told her afterwards that he felt really guilty and that she, we, they shouldn't do this anymore. And he said, look, you know, you're married, you have a child, and this has got to stop. You've got to go take care of your marriage. And so they never talked again, and I guess a few months later, she called him to say she was pregnant. And she didn't exactly say she knew it was his or thought it was his. Supposedly, she was just saying she was pregnant, and he, being 23 years old and tired of being kind of chased, um... He said to her, he said, you know what, he, he thought she was trying to trap him. And he told her, you've got to take care of your marriage and don't call me anymore. Well, at 23 years old, he had his own mind, didn't want to exactly. even think about that. So Larry in New York, the psychologist, who's my second cousin, has been trying to put these pieces together. And he, when he realizes, and of course I get past the him telling me that I obviously have a different father, he went back and looked at our mutual matches on the DNA list. And he knows a lot of the family members, even though there's two sides of the family that I haven't talked in decades. He's helping me with these pieces, and he's looking at the ma- names of the matches, and he's clever enough to also go on Facebook and look at these people's pages. So he's looking at these names, and he says, look, there's this name, it's initials only, but... I think you need to reach out to them. And then there's another name, which I know, which is a Greenberg. And you should try and reach this man, Les Greenberg, because a cousin of Les's is coming up as your second cousin, which means their parent is a first cousin. And if their parent is a first cousin, one of those uncles, uh, uh, brothers, is got to be your father. And I'm like, oh, my God, I couldn't believe that he had figured all this out. So I'm looking for this man, Les Greenberg, looking at his page. Two things I see. I see a name that's familiar from my childhood. A person that's about my age that I grew up with in Boston is somehow connected to his page. And I'm thinking it's got to be her. But the other odd thing says is you have a mutual friend named Arthur Katz. Arthur Katz comes up as a mutual friend to me and Miss Greenberg, and I don't know any Greenbergs. I, say, I write to Arthur. I said, do you know this guy and how to reach him? And he says, yeah, hold on a minute. I'll get you his email. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so easy. And so he gives me Les's email, 
And I emailed him, and I said, we have a DNA connection, and I'd like to explore it further, and I have some questions, and would you be open to talking about it? And he said, sure. So we went back and forth with emails, and um, so I have to stop there for one moment just to say, when I was a kid, maybe 12 or 13, I asked my mother to share her love story with me about her and my dad. How did you meet? What did you have in common? How did you know he was the one? How did you know you wanted to spend the rest of your life with him? What kind of things did you do on dates? And she started the story. Well, she said, first I have to tell you that your dad wasn't my first love, which to a kid, it's kind of shocking. You just kind of think it is. I don't know. At least I did. And so I'm like, yeah, okay. And she said, my first love was high. And then she went on with the story about my dad. And so now I'm in touch with Les Greenberg, and he sends me an email, and I said to him, tell me who your uncles are. So Les writes me this list of his four uncles, and at the very bottom, and each one has a nickname in parentheses, and at the very bottom it says Ira, and in parentheses it says hi. So I knew that was my mother's childhood love, puppy love, who she said. Her love story started with hi. The odds of that email having nicknames in parentheses was just uh, remarkable. And I'm saying, of these four brothers, who's alive? Anybody alive? And he says, well, out of the four brothers, my uncle hi is alive. I said, oh, my God. Now I can hardly breathe. My father is alive. And he's 89. And he's in Florida, and for the first time in a long time, I'm on the East Coast with my sister in Virginia. And Les, I don't tell Les yet that I know that High's got to be my father. I tell him I want to, could I speak with High? And he says, yeah, and here's his number. And um, I called. I started out with, you know, my name. I didn't use my last name. And I said I was doing a DNA family tree search, and it looked like, you know, we had some things in common. Would he mind answering some questions? And he was like, no, go ahead. Ask me anything you want. I'm like, great. So did you know a Bryna? Now, it's a most unusual name, actually. So if you ever knew one, you wouldn't forget that you knew one. And he right away said, Bryna? Sure, I knew Bryna. I thought, oh, God, now my heart's really pounding. And I said, um, did you know her as a friend within a circle of friends? Uh, or did you date her? And he said, no, we dated. I'm like, oh, God, here we go. I said, hi, I have a really personal question to ask you. And it's really uncomfortable asking it, but it would really help me greatly. And he said, go ahead, ask me anything you want. I said, did you have sex with her? Did we have sex? Yeah, we had sex. And that's when I really felt like I knew for sure. And this is what I said to him. I said, hi, are you sitting down? And he says, I'm 89. I'm almost always sitting down. And I said, do you have any heart conditions? And he said, heart conditions? No, I had a stint about 10 years ago, but I'm good. I said, great. I said, Brian is my mother. 
and I'm 99.9% sure you're my father. And there was a moment of silence, and he said, Julie, you're blowing my mind. And I thought, oh, my God, I haven't heard that expression since the 60s. And he sounds like quite a character, and I know he's totally shocked. And, and he was very, stand, became standoffish. And he said, I, I don't know what, what made you think that this is true. You don't have my DNA to test. And how did you get my number? So I mentioned all the names, his nephews, his nieces. These are my first cousins that I never knew. And they're his nieces and nephews. I realize he's pretty upset. So I try like reroute the direction the conversation was going. And I start to ask him about his life. And we were on the phone for over an hour. But I think towards the beginning, actually, I said, he says to me, well, I don't know what you want from me. What do you want from me? And I started to cry. And I just said, I want you to tell me to come to Florida. I want to meet you. And when we come back, this remarkable story continues. There's going to be a trip to Florida. And Julie will be meeting her dad. More of Julie Lawson's story here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories in the last part of this amazing story. Julie Lawson has been telling us how she found out her dad was not really her dad, and she then got in contact with her real biological father, who lives in Florida. She told him, quote, I want you to tell me to come to Florida. I want to meet you. Julie, what did he say next? He says, come to Florida? Come to Florida? I don't know. Well, if you want to come, come. I said, no, I'm not going to come with that tone of voice. So I I redirected the conversation, and he spent an hour telling me about his life and the order of things. And um, he was quite a character. He's funny, and he's got a great, sharp mind. And, I I mean, actually quite amazing. And... um, Towards the end of the conversation, he said, well, I don't know what else to say. And I said again, just tell me to come to Florida. I think because maybe I inserted a little Yiddish in the conversation, and I was, I'm was i a really good listener, and I was so taken by his story, and I had so many questions. I think I softened him a little bit because his tone of voice changed this time. And he said, you want to come to Florida, come. And that was it. I said, I'm going to try and be there within a couple of weeks. And do you know that the week that I was able to get a flight turned out to be the weekend of Father's Day. So this started on Mother's Day, and I met my father and shared his first Father's Day. He never married. He never had children. He didn't know I existed. And at 89, he had a daughter and his first Father's Day. Well, I went to Florida and a couple of days right before Father's Day, his nephew, Les, who had sent me that email, lives an hour away and had arranged to meet me. Les met me at the um, 
independent living home where I was living. I opened the door, and he reached out his arms to me. He said, welcome home, darling. I tried to keep it together. I mean, there I am with a total stranger. It was very mixed emotions. I almost felt an instant love for him. We had a month of conversations before we met. And we would talk a long, long time. And so I did feel this love, and yet it was weird because he's still a total stranger. My mission in sharing my story is I want to find a way to encourage parents to tell their children the truth. Some people say it's not that black and white an issue, but for me it is, even taking into consideration children who are born from rape, from incest, from whatever unusual ways it could be. I mean, I I understand, but I think all children at some age, when it's age-appropriate and in a safe emotional environment with a professional, I think we all deserve to know who our biological parents are. It doesn't mean we'll choose to have a relationship with them. And I, I believe all men have a right to know they have offspring on this planet. I want to encourage people to tell the truth. I know they're afraid. They're afraid of consequences. They're afraid of rocking other boats. They're afraid of being judged. But we can't live our life in fear of what other people think. What they think is none of our business. We need to we need to tell the truth of our lives so that other people get to live the truth of their lives. This is I think so the deepest part of the story and I think what I think people also are afraid to do is in the end tell the truth to themselves. For my mother, every minute, I was a reminder of her indiscretion, the lie she was living. The, the pain that she had to live with her whole oh, life? Oh, yeah. And oh. The, longer, the longer she lived the lie, the harder it was to come forward. Oh. Because when my dad died 11 years ago, she could have told me. If she was trying to protect him, she could have told me. And then I was with her the last 10 days of her life, and she was lucid. And she could have told me. She had many opportunities to break free from this self-imposed judgment and shame. You know, she had many years to process it, and she chose not to. And in some ways, it's because she was just incredibly emotionally damaged herself and didn't know how to really do it. But on the other hand, at some point when you're an adult, I think it is your responsibility to look at your crap and process it and try and come out the other side of it. And um, she just wasn't evolved enough to do anything about her damage. Yep. And so instead, she damaged me severely. I grew up thinking I was mentally retarded. That Back then, it was labeled emotionally disturbed. I was taken to shrinks when I was very young. She was She just didn't know how to look at me and be loving. I know she loved me, but she couldn't treat me lovingly at all, ever. I've been disowned. I've been put on the street. I ran away from home at 15 with nothing on my back but the clothes I was wearing uh, in the middle of a blizzard. I mean, I had to do something to save a piece of my soul because I kept thinking, I bet I'd be a different person if it weren't for all this stress every day and all her nonsense. I, I could find out who I am. I could just be me instead of going to school and zoning out. I can't focus because I'm worrying about what happened last night and what's going to happen when I 
get home and I'm feeling so small and I have no self-esteem and I'm a loner and I'm now growing up being abused by my older brother who I adored and then he went from being my hero to an abuser. Um, I left home at 15 and went to the streets of New York City. I had a really rough life. I never knew what a parent's love felt like. And I am in love with my birth father. We have so much in common. It's uncanny what we have in common. And we adore one another. And we we could just, we talk for hours. Sometimes we talk every day, every other day. Um, I just came back from his 90th birthday party. I got to be with my father on his 90th. For his birthday party, he chose four songs to express his feelings through music because he said he didn't want to bore everybody, that he'd say a little something between songs. And one of the songs he chose for us was Ella Fitzgerald singing, How Deep is the Ocean? That's how deep his love is for me. And two nights ago, when we were talking, he said, Oh, Julie, having you in my life, he said, You know, I was lucky. I was the baby of the family. I was loved by everybody. I had family, but it's so different having a daughter. This kind of love, I mean, you're mine. I have a daughter. I'm 89. This was when he was 89. He first said it. He was crying. I said, why are you crying? He says, I've missed 65 years of knowing my daughter. I had a daughter walking the earth that I didn't get to know. And you know what, Lee? He grew, he, I grew up around the corner from where he was. I could have known him the first 25 years of my life. All the love I missed out on, all the things I could have, I would have had a soft place to land had I not been the secret. What you still have is such a remarkable gift. And this man, this man had chosen to never, never marry and he had chosen to never have kids. And my goodness, what a gift for him. That's what a what gift for said. him. He just told me the other night, he said, you've changed my life. He said, I feel so different. I have a daughter. And I said, I know. I said, and you could have been a jerk, and I wouldn't have liked you, or I could have been a jerk, and you wouldn't have liked me, but look at us. And uh, by the way, it was clear that you guys, you, you both shared the most important of all things, which is a common sense of humor. He cracks me up. He's a great joke teller. I could never remember jokes. Oh, does he have a slew, and they're pretty good, and he's got a good delivery. To me the other day, he says, you know, Julie, I've been thinking. I said, what you been thinking about? He said, I've been thinking about what I want on my headstone. I said, your headstone? He says, well, you know, I'm 90 years old. You think about these things. I said, yeah, that makes sense. I said, so what do you want? Did you come up with something? He says, yeah. I wanted to say, stop by any time. I'm always in. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. He's adorable. Oh, well, lucky you is all I can yeah, tell you. And lucky I am him. So lucky. lucky him. Yeah, that's what he says all the time. <laughs> How lucky he is that he has a daughter like me. He said to me, he said, if I had met a woman like you, I'd have married. Wow. How about that? How about Neither of my parents ever expressed any joy about my presence in their life. Amazing. So this is an amazingly cathartic experience for me. I get to be 65 years old and feel this kind of love. And you've been listening to Julie Lawson, and what a story she has to tell. It's a movie, folks. I mean, my goodness, what a movie it would be. And I am sure that as all of this DNA testing happens around this world and 
around this country. My goodness, these are stories that I would bet are popping up all over the country. And by the way, I think Julie's right. Every parent should tell the truth to their kids when they're ready. And all children at some time do deserve to know who their biological parents are. And I even love the way she said that men, they too deserve to know. And my goodness, when she started to talk about her parents, her life, and how she felt so small, she felt so alone, she felt abused, she left home at 15, she did have a really, really rough life. And my goodness, we know why. When she said those words, neither of my parents ever expressed any kind of joy about having me in their life. Uh, Just like a kick in my gut. And we know why now. The mother had an illegitimate child, and the father knew it. And the father also knew that the mother didn't love him. And she knew it. What a disaster. And what a story, and what courage for telling it. Julie Lawson's story. My goodness, more people like her, I'm sure, are out there than we know. Julie Lawson's story, her sister's story, and, of course, High's story. And in the end, a beautiful love story here on Our American Stories.